Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning into this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Leah Leibowitz. He is a senior writer for Tablet Magazine and a co-host of the wildly popular podcast Unorthodox. He's also the author most recently of Stan Lee, A Life in Comics. He's a great guy and a dear friend, and we had a wide-ranging, fun conversation that I hope you enjoy as much as I did. I give you Liel Woods. Liel, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure to be here, my good friend. I missed you. Yeah, actually, Here's you're a very you. good friend. Uh, so we're going to talk about all things Stan Lee, comic book, Judaism, and the redemption of the world. But I... So, uh, I want to talk for a second, though, about like this. Um, and full disclosure, I'm a Democrat, right? I think the most insidious form, you know, no, nobody's perfect, exactly. <laughs> but there is this insidious form of discrimination that is being allowed on the left today: um, anti-Semitism. And basically, I mean, Bill De Blasio is the your mayor is the um, instantiation. An incarnation of it. I mean, it, it is the things that are going on with Jews in New York City right now. Like this, as as your and my friend Mark says, we always have to say, it, it, Jews will always know if it doesn't begin with us, it will end with us. And you know, it, when you watch what people do with Jews, you, it, it, you guys are kind of the canary in the coal mine. And the things that are going on in New York are are, are disgusting. Look, it's it's kind of mind baffling, even for a sort of grim, pessimistic, uh, you know, guy like me who is always inclined to believe the worst. So last year, for for those of of our listeners who are not blessed with knowledge of of our city, uh, fair New York, um, last year our mayor, who is a literally a former Sandinista supporter, a former supporter of the Marxist guerrilla movement in in South America. Uh, vainly and stupidly decided to run for president. And he was sort of, you know, off ambling in, in uh, Iowa and all kinds of other New Hampshire, other other states. And there was a period of, of many months. At least he was which, tall. I, I, I never saw, I oh, never realized how tall he was. He's exceedingly tall, which kind of makes him look weird. He, he sort of, when you meet him in person, he kind of kind of looks like a Muppet. You know, it's like something on strings with felt that doesn't quite move and feel right. But this guy is off, you know, in the heartland. And Jews are being attacked literally every week. And I, I don't mean the occasional racial slur, although those would be bad enough. I mean like stones to the face, smashed, attack, brutal, violent. The guy, not only does he not interrupt his campaign to come back to New York and talk, he doesn't even issue like a press conference. He doesn't even issue a statement saying, hey guys, you know, that's a problem. We have to handle it. And like, look, I wish I could say it's only him. I think this kind of cheapening of anti-Semitism and violence against Jews is is prevalent in the Democratic Party. You see it in congresswomen like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They're much more willing to forgive and forget uh, unspeakable acts and statements against Jews than they would have been against any other minority in the United States of America. And that's just infuriating. And don't you think, I mean, there's some, I think what liberals have taught us, like, you know, 
The Fox News Sean Hannity smell test on racism is, oh my gosh, if you didn't light a cross on someone's lawn, you know, that's not racist. And, and the left has taught us to, oh no, there's more subtle forms of racism. But it's like the left has turned that kind of censor off with anti-Semitism. <laughs> they kind of they kind of do the Hannity thing. Oh my gosh, if you didn't if you didn't uh, take a pinskin dip and make a Molotov cocktail out of it and, and throw it in a synagogue, you weren't racist. I mean, this is this is where the left has failed itself, right? I think on some level, in the in that the things that the liberalism has taught the culture nobly, like in the sense of hey, we got to be sensitive to discrimination. It's almost like when it comes to Jews, oh, that doesn't matter. You know, I agree, but the one place where I disagree with you is is this notion of left versus right. I actually think that what we now sometimes hastily, maybe even foolishly call the left, isn't really, you know, it's not liberal in, in any recognizable, historical, sensible form at all. It's, it's this kind of uh, almost cult, right, that calls itself itself progressive um but that has really weird theological markings of um kind of otherworldly uh eschatological uh aspirations it wants a project that completely redoes the world which has never been liberalism's appetite or or intention um and by doing that it has made common cause with with a lot of hateful groups it is very tolerant towards, uh, you know, uh, radical Islamist terrorists. Uh, it is very intolerant towards Jews. It's just a weird world to live in right now for for American Jews. I think. Yeah, it's interesting because I had Noah Rothman, a friend of yours, on the podcast recently, and and David French on the podcast. Yeah, good guys. This is. Uh, I, I want to have like uh, one wasp, two Jews. That could be the panel <laughs> one day. But uh, <laughs> but both of them. You know, have have got on this kind of vibe that, like, I think the real thing is not left right; it's illiberal versus liberal. Because there's a populism on the right and a populism on the left that are both illiberal, right? And so, like, you you kind of like it's the people that won't let a conservative speaker come on on a college campus, or won't let Bill Maher come on a college campus because of things he's he said about Islam or something. And 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 you see it on the Trump populist movement. It it, it seems like this the there's a populist kind of movement that's killing the possibility of real liberalism in the sense where classical liberalism in the sense of where we can all have free markets, free ideas, and and through free markets and free ideas, a kind of possibility to really thrive and flourish and have human experimentation. That It seems like this populism is kind of shutting that, foreclosing the doors on that. And, and, and it always seems from both ends to be anti-Semitic. See, I, I see, I hear you on the anti-Semitic part, but I see the schism um, or the chasm, I should say, should use less religiously loaded terminology uh, as as occurring along a different fault line. To me, it's it's much less about illiberalism versus liberalism or open societies versus closed societies. What this really is about, to the extent that you could you know pin such great historical shifts on kind of keywords, uh, is and I I borrow the term of a great British writer and sociologist, uh, it's about the anywheres versus the somewheres. I think the shift that you've seen in the world in the last 50 years is the emergence of a, a small but influential group of anywheres. You know, these are people, uh, they've gone to law school or business school. Uh, they earn good money. Uh, they live in Chicago, maybe, but they could easily do their job the same way in Paris or in Berlin, or in Kyoto, it doesn't really matter because they truly belong 
to what they determine or, or, or refer to as like a global citizenry. And on the other side of this, uh, there are schmoes like myself who see themselves very much as somewheres. You know, hey, our life is here in, 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 in Youngstown. Our life is here in Columbus, Ohio. Our life is here in Bucks County. Uh, we have certain values. We have certain sensibilities. Uh, we have certain pride of place. We don't want to change. Uh, we don't want to leave. We don't want to transform ourselves or transport ourselves. We want to continue things more or less along the ways that they were. And we recognize that a lot of these processes that we were told are historically inevitable, like you know, globalism has to happen. They weren't inevitable at all. They were just decisions of a certain class of people for fun and profit at our expense. And and we don't like that. Now, that movement, you could call it populist. Sometimes it appears on the left like it did with you know the Bernie bros. Sometimes it appears on the right like it did with Trump. And it's, I think, no coincidence that so many you know Bernie supporters kind of had sympathies towards Trump and, and, and vice versa. Um, I think that's the real challenge, and and you know I don't want to term it as a kind of you know the masses versus the elites, but it goes much much deeper than simply liberal versus illiberal sentiments. So it's interesting. You've written a book about Stanley, and I always think like that the great thing about Marvel is Spider Man, right? So like you, you kind of get this, mm. you know, Superman and Batman. You have to really work hard. You have to get Chris Nolan or something like that to write a movie that makes them empathetic. But Spider-Man's great because like everybody wants superpowers. Howard Stern's always like, the first thing I would do is use superpowers to get girls. Right. And and <laughs> the the eminently Jewish thing about this, right, is like you you Jack Kirby, you you you're talking about you know Lee and the, and the competition, and they write these characters that like I get superpowers and my life doesn't get better. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the, 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 so many of the Marvel characters have these ultimate Achilles heels or these flawed vulnerabilities that make them more, like, it, it, it really exposes things. You no, know, your life wouldn't get better if you had a superpower, right? So I'm, I'm allowing myself to, to nerd out theologically here because it's you and there are so few people in the world who get this uh, at, at as deep a level as you do. Uh, but it's really interesting since you mentioned Batman and Superman. So both Batman and Superman were created by Jews, right? But they were created by Jews, I think, who are kind of playing to the Gentile audience. And in a way, Batman and Superman, and, and I kind of nerd out about this a little bit in my book, Batman versus Superman is kind of the continuation of the sort of great Protestant schism of the first, you know, 150 years of American life, which is the tension between modernism on the one hand and fundamentalism on the other. Uh, it's Batman, the embodiment of the idea of you don't need superpowers if you have wealth, industriousness, and science uh, at, at your side, versus Superman, who's literally Jesus Christ from space, right? He's the, he's the one who had come here to suffer and redeem us through his grace. Um, and that is really- How does anybody not recognize him with the glasses? Like, when, right? when Clark Kent puts the glasses on, you're like, are you a moron? It's like, it's like oh, oh, sorry. Oh, hi, come on. Like, are you a moron? Let us not forget that this was created by literally two 16-year-olds who were sitting there in recess in high school being like, nobody will know if he combed his hair to the side. Um, you comb your hair on the other side and put glasses on like, and you're fine. Look at him. He doesn't look at all like this other Superman guy. But so Stanley sees that 
And and here's the kind of weird truth. He's bored by it. He's like, what's the fun of a Superman? Like, yeah, he comes down from the sky. He redeems mankind. He goes back, you know, rinse, repeat. Like, what he wanted is to pose a kind of more Jewish sensibility, which is kind of almost a, a Talmudic sensibility, which said, first of all, let's have a bunch of these people with superpowers. Uh, which, of course, if there's a bunch of them, it means none of them are very special at all. I mean, they're very wonderful, but they're not superhuman in any real sense. Uh, then let let them let's have them argue all the time. Let's have them quibble over every aspect of their lives and the universe, which of course is a sort of quintessential elemental aspect of Jewish scholarship and thought throughout the ages. Uh, and then, and I think this is kind of the real coup in, in Stan Lee's insight. He said precisely what you just said. Uh, let us not forget that even with superpowers, these people are deeply vulnerable. Uh, which is a kind of a core teaching of Judaism, the fact that um, you could um, you could try as you want. I mean, the, the great uh, piece of wisdom here is it's a saying from the rabbis. I'll, I'll rock a little bit of the Hebrew, which means everything is foreordained and permission is given, meaning everything is preordained, but you still have permission and some free will to kind of try and navigate your own space. And I think out of that insight, come all these tremendous characters like Spider-Man who said, okay, well, I had this thing, this fate, this destiny, this curse, this gift, but I'm still trying to fight it. I'm still trying to define myself. I'm still trying to find myself in it, which is kind of tremendous. Yeah, and I feel like like The Incredible Hulk is like the ultimate like kind of combination of the Wolfman and Blackout Drunk, like where you kind of like, you wake up someday and your pants are ripped and you're like, what happened then? <laughs> Which would have been my experience in college for about three years. See, so so the Incredible Hulk is 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 one of my favorites, if not my favorite. And I wrote this really long and strange chapter about him. Uh, and and here was kind of the key insight. There was a very famous rabbi who lived in the sixties and seventies um, called Rabbi Soloveitchik. He was so famous that his name was simply Rav, the Rabbi. I mean, you just said the Rabbi, everybody knew who you were talking about. And he wrote this. Um, this book that I cannot. Do you ever just hope that not, somebody's going to say the Liel? Like they're going to be like at some point they're going to be like the Liel. That's who we do. We're then, about. then I know humanity has indeed lost <laughs> its millennia long struggle. Um, <laughs> so, so the Rav goes out there and writes a book that is not an easy book. It's not a beach read, but I really think people should pay attention to this book. It's called The Lonely Man of Faith, and basically it starts with a groovy question. It's like there are two accounts if you read Genesis closely. There are two accounts of creation. There's an account on the first chapter. And then in the second chapter, there's a really kind of radically different account. You know, the first account is kind of like Adam and Eve are born together. They are awesome. They are here to take dominion over the earth. They're industrious. They're rulers of all they see. Then in the second chapter, for some reason, the account comes again. At this point, man is created from dust, not just out of thin air. Woman is created out of the rib. Um, and Adam in this account, and Eve too, are not lords of their dominion, but rather custodians, uh, caretakers of all of God's creation. And, and the Soloveitchik, the rabbi, calls this Adam 1 and Adam 2. And basically said this is indicative of the tension that we all have. On the one hand, human beings yeah. really kind of want to you know, produce, conquer, go to space, science, be like these amazing creatures that discover everything. On the other hand, 
they also understand that they're, they're very limited creatures and really their task in life is to be conservators, to be caretakers. And he said it's really only when Adam 1 and Adam 2 come together in a communion with a third party, who's of course God, that the full extent of human capacity and capability is unlocked. And I think the Hulk is exactly that. Bruce Banner and the Incredible Hulk are like Adam 1 and Adam 2. One of them is really arrogant, a man of science who thinks he could, you know, overturn the order of creation just by virtue of his great big brain. The other one is a raging monster uh, who's at the same time very sweet and very protective. Together, they're human. It's really kind of a metaphor for Genesis. It's an incredible series. It, it's interesting because I, um, you know, Noah Rothman, again, was on the podcast a couple of days ago, and um, we were talking about, like, the um, the immigration debate and, and how how Kant or Hegel would deal with it, right? And so basically, you know, you have this kind of rhetoric. The immigrant, the undocumented worker is Speedy Gonzalez, and he's going to take your job away. But he's also lazy and shiftless and a criminal. Right. So Kant would say, oh, well, this is inconsistency. Like, And these guys that do this great podcast, My Theory, they were saying the Hegelian approach would be like, well, no, the, the I mean, the truth is always in the tensions and contradictions. And so we're all I, I want to, by the way, congratulate you. Uh, you have gone 16 minutes before getting to Hegel, which I believe is a personal record for you. Nice. Look at <laughs> us. Right, exactly. 16 minutes to Hegel. 16, that could be our next podcast. 16 right. minutes to 16 Hegel. 16 minutes to Hegel. But, but, but Hegel's kind of, yeah, no, we're all shiftless and industrious. We all contain multitudes, right? And so, like, this is the thing where we're, we are all infinite contradictions, sure. right? And so, like, and so. Except for Batman and Superman, who are just boring, monolithic slabs of perfection. How would you write Batman? If you were, like, if you were going to write, like, Batman, because this is the thing. I mean, the Christopher Nolan movies were pretty good i felt like as movies but like but again it, it's this kind of but almost they kind of stripped them down like how like it, do you think like and it's interesting because the marvel cinema universe is the is the kind of um almost the anti thing of what you're saying like it's kind of pumping right. up on steroids 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 so how do you like write the stanley jewish kind of how do you rewrite the, the well, I think with batman with batman there, there are really only two approaches right one is the absolute um, genius of Alan Moore, you know, the guy who did uh, The Watchmen, who wrote, sort of basically resurrected Batman and wrote the series called uh, Gotham by Gaslight, which imagines Batman in basically London of the 19th century of Jack the Ripper, uh, which is so dark and, and really dives unapologetically into all the psychological fissures that, that make Batman interesting. The other way, which honestly... Kind of my favorite way is the Adam West TV show. <laughs> it basically let's realize <laughs> that this is really freaking funny and kinky. And let's just have like sound effects and like ridiculous outfits and Eartha Kit as but just fun. So tell me talk, so okay. You think that um Kirby's greatest creation was the silver surfer. I mean, oh, this man. is a really weird uh cosmic power who's godlike and also gets trapped for a while in the kind of Earth's stratosphere in the comics mm -hmm. and things like that. So, what, talk to me about the Silver Surfer. So, first of all, I want to talk to you about Jack Kirby. Uh, if there's one person who deserves a freaking stamp, right, a parade, a, 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 I don't know, a, a portrait in a national gallery, it's Jack Kirby, who I'm saying this with zero trepidation, is the greatest American artist of the 20th century, yeah. period. 
bar none. Uh, Jack Kirby is 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 like a, 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 just an absolute kind of mastermind. Uh, but you know, he's this fighting little squatty, swarthy kid from Brooklyn who literally grew up in street gangs, you know, fighting for his supper because they had no money, they had no no job, no prospect. Uh, and so he's sitting there and he's always underpaid and he's always underrespected. He uh, finishes five pages in a day, whereas other artists finish basically one at the time. Uh, but he has this great frenemy relationship with Stan Lee in which Stan Lee, perfecting what would later be known as the Marvel method, basically comes up with a kernel of a story, lets uh, Kirby draw whatever he wants, and then writes words. So one day, Lee sitting in his office. He had told Kirby some story that had to do with a Fantastic Four, and he gets the art back. And smack in the middle of the page, he sees a silver dude on a surfboard in the middle of his sky with like explosions all around him. The whole thing looks like a freaking acid trip, right? Now, here's Lee's real genius. Every other person would have been like, what the, what is this? You know, I, I didn't ask for this guy. This is messing up the entire storytelling. Lee looks at him and in one fell swoop says, I completely understand who this guy is. And here's this genius of this guy. And, and in the book, I compare him to Abraham. And I really don't think it's a, it's a much of a stretch. This is a guy who grew up on a, on a faraway planet who one day uh, heard the call of a mighty God who told him to leave his home that he loved and venture forth to a faraway planet. Uh, and after many trials and ordeals that involved the potential sacrifice of everyone he loved, uh, the Silver Surfer finally emerges as a morally autonomous, independent individual. Uh, and and, 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 Gal and Galacticus, he, Galacticus commandeers him. I mean, he's pulled, like Abraham, he's pulled out. I mean, he's not, it's not, it's not, a, a, it's not like a, hey, you can do this, this is great, it's going to be easy. He has to leave has to fight the for thing right he party. loves. Right. To go kind of, I mean, and it, and this is, it's interesting because so much of the, reading the Bible, right, is all about Adam and Eve and new creation. Like you, because, uh, you know, David's a new Adam, Abraham's a new Adam, like uh, this Adam Eve story. And like, you, if you were sitting and looking at, you know, circa, you know, 2000 BC or whatever, like you would not bet that the redemption of the world would depend on a childless and fertile couple who were worshiping. Right. In their 90s in their 90s were worshiping pagan gods mm -hmm. and yet this is god's like i love this <laughs> this is perfect <laughs> there we go this is this is the material to redeem the world like see this is this is the great thing about abraham because other people in the bible before abraham like we hear about noah for example why would this dude chosen to be the one to kind of carry mankind forth after the deluge. Well, we're told he was Sadiq Badotav. He was righteous in his generations. He's the best guy around. About Abraham, we're told nothing. Abraham is a completely ordinary person. His moment comes, uh, and, and philosopher Susan Neiman said, you know, that's actually kind of the birth of Western morality, comes at this moment uh, in which God comes to him and says, I'm going to destroy the cities of the plain. I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, these are wicked people, and I'm going to give them their comeuppance. And Abraham rises up and argues on behalf of complete strangers, argues for the quality of mercy, argues so that God may spare uh, these people and have some compassion. And, and he literally kind of hassles with him, you know, would you spare the city for 50 righteous people? Yes, great. How about 40? Do I hear a 30? Give me 20. 10 it is. 
Um, it's, it's an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. And a silver surfer does a similar thing. He sees these people who, you know, in his mind may as well be worthless. They're, they're earthlings to him are aliens and, and they're far less capable than he is, but he is awoken by them to feel this compassion, to feel this call to morality and go stand up to Galactus, even though the price he has to pay is tremendous. Leal, you sound like intersectionality here. You sound like you're saying that Abraham is a very good Jewish defense lawyer. <laughs> the original. The original. He's not, not an ambulance chaser. He's a deity chaser. I don't know what he is. Yeah, no, it's yes, interesting too because the first words he speaks to God in the dialogue in Genesis are doubt. Like when he, like in Genesis like 15, right? He says, just let Eliezer be my heir. Come on, I'm going to cash in my chips. I mean, and, and the beautiful thing I think about like God's reaction to him is like, I'm going to make good on my promise. You just mm-hmm. cling in there. You hang in there with me. Right. And this is why and I, 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 I love this, that, that you, what you're saying here, because you know, you're exactly right. This is why God needs to test Abraham not once, not twice, not thrice, five different times, right? Because imagine what you would feel like if all of a sudden God came to you and be like, Scott Jones, you know, leave Philly and go to, you know, Ohio. It'd be like, what? Who's, who's talking? Who's calling? It's amazing. Literally amazing. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your own, like, journey with Stanley. I mean, and the death of Stanley. I mean, when Stanley died, what... How did you feel? I mean, because you're a guy that's connected to media and, you know, you're on social media and you know things. Like, you probably heard about the day it happened. Like, how did you I feel? Did. Um, you know, this is a really hard question. Um, on a very personal level, I mean, look, of course, I was, I was sort of devastated because I had always hoped one day I would meet him. But on a professional level, I never wanted to interview him uh, because Stan Why not? made yeah, because he made a li- because he made a living, if not a life, lying to people like me. <laughs> you know, part of the fun that I had writing this book is tracking down his. Um, and I use this term with a with a with a very kind heart and and a big smile on my face. His uh, creative exaggeration. Stan Lee was someone whose genius was uh, sifting the what the filmmaker Werner Herzog, who I love, called the ecstatic truth rather than merely the factual truth. Stan Lee was someone to whom the potential of a good story was was of, of far more importance than you know, a few uh, inconsequential facts that could get in the way. And so I knew that if I actually interviewed him, he would give me the same treatment that he had given you know, probably 10,000 enthusiastic young men before me. What I wanted is sort of almost time alone with him and, and, and his heart and his spirit. And, and really the only place that you could get that with Stanley is if you tune out all the noise and you just focus on the work. If you focus on the work, you see this incredible spiritual, almost religious current that you never hear in interviews. I'll give you one quick example, which I think is astonishing and really was was probably the one discovery that that blew my mind working on this book. So throughout his entire career, Stanley is asked, is any of this influenced by religion? Did your religion have anything to do with it? Are you a God-fearing mm. man? What's the deal here? And repeatedly, he sort of played the fool. Right? He said, what? I've never, I've never been asked this question. Never even occurred to me. What, who, me? What? No. Um, and, and you kind of, it's easy to take that, that, that answer for granted until you start kind of looking at the comic books and seeing these threads and these similarities and these themes that are too prevalent and too resonant to be coincidences. 
And then I started kind of digging through the archives. And I found out the following thing. In, I believe it was 1970, maybe 1971, uh, Stan Lee had finally risen up through the ranks and become the big boss at Marvel after it was acquired by some large corporation. And the new corporate bosses say, okay, we're, we're, we're taking Carnegie Hall and we're throwing you a big party, a Stan Lee tribute. Wow. What do you want to do? And he said, you know what? I want to do one thing. There was a lot of fanfare, a lot of the stars, a lot of the Marvel comic creators, musicians, circus performers. And then at the end of the evening, he takes the stage and he reads a 15-minute poem that he had written, the title for which is God Cried. And it basically is written from God's perspective, looking at his creations and bitterly feeling the sting of, of, of their mm. failures and, and, of their, and of their sins. Uh, and it is such a profoundly theological work. Uh, it has never been reproduced in any other piece of work as far as I know. It's not commonly known. But to think that he had the opportunity in this great pinnacle of his career, in this moment of celebration, to do whatever he wanted. And what he wanted to do was read a very long poem about God. Yeah, that's not a coincidence right there. Mm. So, Leah, one of the things that I think is most interesting about you as a person, and I, I think anybody that does this is is amazing, you've had a conversion in adult life. So you went from what we'd call the kind of political cultural left to the right. Oh. Yeah. And from, I think from you're being, from being Jewish to being really Jewish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to be Jew, really, yeah. to be really Jewish. Um, I'm a Jew to a big Jew. Yeah, uh, I remember like my wife asked one time, like uh, when I was on uh, the Gentile of the Week, like what's the best Jewish cocktail? And you're like pastrami on rye or something. That's right. <laughs> oh, by the way, your dad also told you something. I'm going to quote to all my listeners. I remember it like it was yesterday. You said in the podcast on a Father's Day podcast. My father gave me three pieces of advice. Don't Correct. ever use a gun, you know, unless you're ready to shoot it. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't ever have a boss. Mm-hmm. And whenever you don't know what to order in a restaurant, order the club sandwich. That's absolutely correct. I, 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 I think those are great, great things. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, again, I'm a, I'm a big fan. Um, the rest think, is commentary. Exactly. But I think that what's interesting is, is I think very few people in life are capable of adult conversions. And you were. I mean, you actually went from a kind of guy who was in the center left, uh, raised in Israel, which is, you know, had a. We think of the, the Netanyahu government now, it's it, but it was not always like the kind of center left was predominant in, in decades previous. And you kind of came to America and you had an evolution. And I think that's amazing that you were able to change ideas i mean how how do you do that like i mean Look, man, I, I i really want to i really want to, to sort of like t- take this this laurel that, that you're placing in my head and say yeah thank you that was really you know a, a big staggering work of emotional and intellectual you know transformation but honestly i mean this may sound like bullshit but i i don't feel i have changed an iota i, I think that and I, I realize that a lot of people who had conversions, especially political conversions, say exactly what I'm saying right now. But I feel in a lot of ways, really, I remain standing more or less in place. And so much of the world shifted around me. I'll give you an example. You know, when I came to this country, when I moved here from Israel, which is in 1999, um, being a good leftist meant pretty much that the top of your agenda was worrying about things like, you know, income inequality or housing or immigration, which are things that I still care about very deeply and about which I have not changed my opinions even a tiny bit. Um, 
if you had told me back then that the core, a core issue motivating the left would be the insistence against so much evidence that there are actually 57 representations of gender, and that if you dared question that, you would be uh, labeled as someone who partook in hate speech, I don't think I would have been able to intellectually and emotionally understand what it is that you're saying. Now, this is not to denigrate so much of the good work uh, that the American left has done in the last 20 years. And I think uh, particularly on issues of of racism, uh, we have come a very long way and and have made, I mean, if you look at uh, the the, the absolute kind of like gory lynching uh, that we have seen just a few days ago, a completely innocent, unarmed black man jogging in his own street, uh, you understand that this work is, is God's work. But at the same time, I feel so much of the tenor of the conversation has changed and and not for the better. And so if I look at the core things that I believed 20 years ago, I, I still believe many, many, many of them. But just believing them puts me in a very different political place in American life. And that's honestly, that's weird to me. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, this is a, so you're channeling Reagan right now, right? Where Reagan says, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party Correct. left me. I mean, you kind of, you're kind of thinking that the best way and again, we could debate this and argue this, but you, what you're saying is your commit the best way to honor your commitments you came to this country with was to move from center left to center right. That, that basically the right there was a there was a kind of there's a kind of geography in the center right that actually enables you to pursue the same commitments in a way that seems more logical and 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 achievable. I mean, maybe, uh, but but I think you mentioned the key notion here, which is honoring my commitments. Look, I, I came here very much uh, out of uh, an ideological as well as uh, practical impulse. I firmly, uh, enthusiastically, completely uh, believe in the uh, divine chosenness of this nation, uh, among all others, for uh, very special purposes. Uh, I think this is a very holy place with a very godly mission. Um, I feel that stating that 15 years ago was not at all a controversial move, even in the sort of hard uh, left of Columbia University, where, where I got my degree. I think if you Leo, Leo, now, just re- Leo, repeat that three times, and Jerry Falwell Jr. will let you speak at Liberty. <laughs> <laughs> would appear <laughs> out of the screen and say exactly um and you could just be like you could be like this is the most chosen nation i believe that man Completely. it is it is a unique thing i mean it is america is unique right i mean this is like you're you know i'm sure you and i both love jenna goldberg um the whole suicide of the west argument i mean we take this for granted that we have this kind of free markets free ideas a place where prosperity can really and and, and this is where like my conversation with with noah rothman i mean like he was talking about interrogating your priors and he was like i thought china i i need to I, he's like i thought we could put that off to 2040 and but like we we probably <laughs> don't want to live in a world where the where the belt road initiative shapes the world infrastructure we probably want want to live in a world where people can where something like free markets and free ideas whether you're a democrat or a republican like we, we can quibble over like the particulars of the liberal project but you, you probably do want to live in a world where the united states shapes the direction of things more than china does right i, re- I refuse to imagine any other yeah and, and if china does it will liel sm- liel smash <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I think one of the um, 
if we're looking for silver linings among uh, this very dark cloud that has descended on us with with COVID nineteen, I think one major silver lining is is the realization that is um, not a moment too soon that China. Uh, I shouldn't even say China. I should say the the Communist Party uh, that governs uh, China oppressively um, is a strategic threat or perhaps the core strategic threat to the United States now. And that's not to say that I'm uh, yearning for the day that, you know, F-15s will fly over Beijing. Uh, But I am certain that we're going to see a lot more of uh, a lot more rethinking of our and this is different than Russia. I feel like we should defend the Ukraine and we should, you know, like, promote free people and free markets and free ideas and freedoms for everybody like in human rights but russia is something different after communism because it's just nationalist like vladimir putin just wants like his kind of little wing of eastern europe back. like it's a different thing right than china that's like they've got a global blueprint that is that that is like really antithetical to everything again whether you're Left of center, right of center. It's it, it's antithetical to everything we believe in. Look, even you don't even have to. First of all, yes, you're right, but you don't even have to go so far. If you look once again, just at the last three or four months, and we're recording this in, in May of of 2020, for those of of you listening in posterity, if you look at the last four or so months, uh, you see that there is pretty good evidence to suggest that the novel coronavirus was manufactured in a lab in Wuhan. You see that there is very good evidence to suggest that China suppressed knowledge of the virus real impact uh, while for weeks, if not months, while hoarding uh, medical supplies for its own advantage uh, and subsequently causing the death of 70,000 as as of this counting American citizens and, and the economic devastation of tens of millions of others. To me, that is akin to an act of war. And so, again, I'm not saying that I that I advocate uh, military use. I'm very, very cautious with, with these solutions in general and, and don't think that they're uh, usually very helpful. But I do think that it's time for China to have a major reckoning and it's time for the United States to demand it. So talk to I me. I think it'll about, become a bipartisan issue. By the way, I don't think it's particularly controversial, or will not be in the in the near future. Talk to me about Howard the Duck, <laughs> a misunderstood hero of our time. Yeah, <laughs> right. This is a, a a real Marvel classic. You know, there. Here's the the the, the amazing thing, uh, and 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 at the same time, also tragic thing about the Marvel universe. Uh, first of all, let's remember this. Stanley's Stanley's like the Beatles in this respect. His entire career, the entire thing that we think, oh my God, Stanley, he died. He was in his nineties. He must have had years upon years upon years upon years of creativity. And reality he had something like nine years of actually coming up with literally every Marvel comic book character that we know, and then basically spending four or five decades just touring the country promoting his stuff himself, trying to you know come up with other formats and the internet or in TV and stuff like that. Um, but one thing that he did, I think, very well. Was that hard on him? Like, You know, I think not because I think, honestly, his greatest creation was Stan Lee. And for him hmm. to have the pleasure of going to these cons, to these comic cons and, you know, all other conferences and just being basked with love and attention and admiration – I think that was very pleasant for him. He never made the kind of money that he should have made, uh, but he received the kind of uh, fame and the kind of adulation 
that he definitely deserved. I think it was a pretty sweet life for him. Do you enjoy that? I mean, because I feel like, so you're a pretty celebrated journalist and, Hard. you know, uh, you're polemical and, 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 and kind of controversial kind of but a very great writer and i hear about you on other podcasts and and i mean even the first time i ever interacted with you i i felt like i i knew a liel that was you know like it, it, it it's you know you and i know each other a little bit now but like it, not incredibly well but we've interacted is that i mean do you do you how do you deal with that like do you feel like existentially you you i mean are, are you a dark and stormy figure <laughs> like, around these things? Like, I mean, do you like, because I find you really charming and every time <laughs> we've interacted, I find you just as this incredibly charming, generous, gregarious figure. Um, but is there something you'd rather have out of your literary, like your great, I mean, your, your prose is like amazing, but is there something you, you want different out of this life? So, so it's, it's not different what I'm going through. And I think, you know, I think if we're being honest, it's what really all of us, or at least all of us who are, who are in it for the right reasons are going through. Look, on the one hand, you are so incredibly grateful for this opportunity to have the kind of life where, where literally your job is to read and, and think and talk to people and then uh, have conversations uh, publicly and, and try to convince people to rethink uh, their positions about very important matters from uh, China's culpability to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, but then inevitably, there's kind of a dark side to that because at some point uh, you would say something or do something and then you would look into the abyss of social media and you would see you know, 7,000 people calling for your uh, execution in, in one form or another. And as as a, as a normal person, in what form? In what say, forms hey, were guys. they? That they what they call it, drawn quartering, like hanging. Well, it depends on where it's coming from. Uh, it's it's depends on the flavor of the anti semite. <laughs> you know, the right <laughs> prefers more traditional methods. The left is what a is your more what is your favorite flavor of anti semite? Is it is it sriracha? Is it I, is is it a West Virginia sriracha? Are you, yes, when you're thinking yes, about anti-Semitism, is there like, well, my favorite guys are from Montana. I'm a traditionalist when it comes to this. I, I see this is one of the things that that really bothers me. The, the new anti-Semites have gotten wiser, and they would say things. Well, I I'm not an anti-Semite. I'm just anti-Zionist, which is another way of saying, well, I don't hate the Jews. I just think that they alone of all nations in the world don't deserve their own right for self-determination in the form of a country. Um, I like, like everything. Look, I like my whiskey, uh, neat. I like you my want steak. A straight, you want a straight, you want, I like you, want a guy, you want a guy in a sheet. You want yeah, a guy exactly in a sheet right. so I can see them. I want, hello, my name's Billy Bob. I hate the Jews. I'd be like, Billy Bob? <laughs> Hello, what can I tell you? And you could be like, and you, and you could be like Billy Bob. It's a self-hating Jew. I hate myself right. a little bit. You know, right. like <laughs> Billy can, Bob Goldberg. What are you play, doing? We could converse. Yeah, Billy Bob, come to Minion. Come on, come to Shul. Uh, no, see, but, but what kills me is that it, it's, it's it's some professor sitting in some panel uh, in some ritzy club in New York, and being like, "Well, you know," be like, "Nah, man, just don't give me that." But this is the problem. I think, again, it is a problem of the left that you have. And again, you could critique Netanyahu. You could critique the Palestinian issue. Like they're, they're, 
look, we're in a you know a liberal democratic polity. You can say this issue with Palestinians is not fair, but it's the tropes and the thing and 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 the and and the cheap stereotypes and the anti-Semitic racist stuff, and it's not and it's not done subtly. Like it, it, and it's celebrated. It, it, right. Thing it, 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 it is it, it is the last kind of form of celebrated discrimination on the left. Like you can, and it's, and it's look, it's 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 laughable, and it actually deeply amuses me until that rare moment in which I kind of you know sober up for a second and say, oh my god, that's actually not funny. <laughs> that's what I was just laughing at was a United Nations resolution or. A major university passing some, you know, cockamamie resolution that says that Israel alone, not Russia, not China, Israel should be banned by scholars. It's just, it's just, it's literally and metaphorically incredible. I remember an episode or an issue of Spider-Man when I was a kid where he had to take the Long Island Railroad out to the suburbs. And it was so weird, <laughs> right? Because it, it, he was on top of the train and he's... Right. But how how much of superhero <laughs> culture depends on the city, like uh, on New York? Because I, mean, I often th- think walking mm. around cities, I think y- you can't be Spider-Man in the suburbs or even Batman or, or anything. I mean, Superman, you could be Superman kind of anywhere, but like, but even then still the glitz and the glamour. But like... So much of the stuff depends on the urban landscape, right? Oh, like swinging around things. Like, so, like, you know, I mean, how much that is a uh, great uh, insight, man. That's absolutely true. I mean, how much of the could, could we have had comic books without New York? See, this is another one of Stanley's great uh, strokes of genius. And I, I talk about this a little bit in my book. Uh, before him, it was all, oh, look at Gotham. Oh, look at Metropolis. Like, these kind of made-up cities that were so clearly New York, but without saying so. Stanley basically walked out. Uh, he wasn't the first to do it. There were other people who did it before him, but this was one of his big kind of pushes and said, why are we playing this game? We, we live in this great city that's instantly recognizable. We could have these superheroes located right here in Times Square and fighting over the Brooklyn Bridge and taking the Long Island Railroad and, and fighting one another. And, and the city, I, I couldn't agree with you more, again, in large part, because comic books are almost entirely a, a Jewish enterprise, at least at, at, at their moment of creation. Uh, and all Jews lived in cities, virtually very few. Uh, I mean, I shouldn't say that. There were, of course, a lot elsewhere. But like the class of, of Jewish artists who created comic books all lived in cities. Uh, and Do you so ever just want to go into in like a, a geeky like um, white nationalist group that's reading comic books and, and, and just mm-hmm. say, aren't you guys, don't you realize you couldn't have comics without the Jews? <laughs> right. See, guys, I have some news, but I, I, I want to kind of like, speaking of nerding out, uh, bring up one point, uh, which is which is also a, a, a shout out for one of my all time favorite comic books. It actually is a Superman comic book. Um, there is a Superman comic book from, I think, like 2006 or 2007 um, called Red Sun. Uh, and the the notion is pure genius. Uh, it begins by posing that rather than sending Superman to Earth at the precise moment that he did, which ends up with him landing in Kansas, his father waited just 90 seconds, which, because of the revolution of the Earth, meant that Superman ended up in a field in the Ukraine and was discovered by a KGB agent and pretty soon became Stalin's right-hand man. Uh, and then the whole series... I know this comic. I know this comic. It is fantastic. What would have happened 
if Superman grew up not in not in a city, but in a you know collective farm. I mean, he grew up in Kansas, but stayed in a collective farm, and then was a was a was a soldier of the Soviet Union. It is pure magic. Yeah, I mean that's it. That Stalin is super, and, and and you know Stalin again. Sometimes you have to kill the people to save the people. But so, I mean, you you have been hit particularly. Hard. You're in New York, and the COVID stuff has not escaped your own even your own home. No. I hope it's okay to say that. Like, um, it is. Yeah. Uh, what is it like right now, existentially, for you? In New so York City, I'm I'm not trying to be glib. Uh, it, 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 first of all, I should say I'm very fortunate because all around me, both in New York and and elsewhere, there are people uh, for whom there are real existential considerations. People who have lost uh, their place of employment, people who are wondering how to make ends meet for basic necessities like housing and food. I'm very fortunate. Uh, we are very fortunate. We, that is not the case for us. Uh, the city is, uh, you know, it's not in good shape. Um, I, I see, for example, a lot of homeless people who depended quite heavily on services that are now shut down and not available to them, who depended on even the the comfort of spending a few hours a day at a McDonald's or a Starbucks, which are now all closed. And it's it's heartbreaking, you know, to see to see so much pain and suffering and, and also to know that for us recovery is going to be much slower because we live in a much denser city uh, and it's going to be much much harder to kind of make sense i mean if you're trying to for example reopen a restaurant and make sure that people don't sit within six feet apart like there are restaurants in new york are, that are literally only six feet like large so and that's your profit it's, margin it's hard. If you're saying then right. you can only open up at 20 percent or 40 percent. that's your profit margin i mean these are that's gonna it. all die i, I mean they- i will say however uh, as as a as a giddy nerd uh, that the last uh, two months for me uh, have not been terrible at all uh, the practice of staying at home and conducting all of my affairs uh here from from this very desk from which i speak to you now with or without pants uh, is what I do in normal times. We got a Nintendo Switch right before this thing started. Uh, my my seven year old son and I have been playing Animal Crossing for hours and hours a day. Uh, so there's a certain charm to it, and I at least hope that my children would remember it as a uh, as a somewhat pleasant period in their lives. Did, wait, so would you tell people to come to New York like after this, like rebuild New York? I mean, are no. you are you? No, you would say get out, get out. <laughs> Look, I think there's a problem with New York. Um, it has to do. It has to do with with so many things that are that are so intricate and, and complicated. You know, one of them is, or probably first and foremost among them. And, and and please, you know, slap me virtually if you feel that I'm becoming the the old man yelling at the cloud. But when I moved to the city, when I moved to the city, which was you know only 20 years ago, um, this was a very vibrant city, precisely because it had a middle class uh, that could sustain. And when all you moved these... to the city, by, by the way, friend of both Unorthodox and my podcast, give and take, Dan Savage. I remember you saying, like, mm-hmm. you open the city paper, reading the sex columns. You're like, I'm here. Sure. It was you my could be only form of entertainment. Yeah, yeah, yeah you could, you could, you, they're, they're, these people, they're sexually neurotic people here. And I mean, they, 20 years ago it was different. Not just, saying. not just sexually neurotic people. There were also places. In which you know freaks, and I use the term very lovingly, could congregate. There was a place that I loved and would go to three times a week. It was called Florent. It was a little bistro in a literal uh, meat cooler, meat big meat freezer, in the meat packing district, which back then was almost exclusively 
occupied by meatpackers, whereas now it is almost exclusively occupied by the Apple Store, the Stella McCartney Boutique, the fancy yeah. House Hotel, right? And you sat at that restaurant. It was a little diner, and you ordered, you know, eggs and, and a muffin. And, you know, um, coked out investment bankers uh, leaving their offices at three in the morning would come there. Meatpackers starting their shifts would come there. Hookers working on the West Side Highway would come there. And 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 this this mass of humanity would just sit together and, and for just a short amount of time forget all these artificial differences and just be together like like humans, like a community. You can't find that in New York right now. You know, the cheapest baseball tickets in the city are are like ninety five dollars now and, and right up in the bleachers. Like there is no experience that I was able to have twenty years ago that I could have now for anything even remotely resembling the same price. It has become a Disneyland for the super wealthy, uh, kind of like constructed on top of a of a vast network of, of misery and suffering of the people who can't quite hack it anymore because the middle class has been completely decimated. And that's, take that and add to that a radical mayor and city council like what we have right now, which literally, you know, communist supporters. I'm not using this as a, as a derogatory slum. This is a, a person who grew up as a Marxist revolutionary uh, or idolized Marxist revolutionaries. Uh, add that and this together, and, and you see that this is a city in, uh, in, in very tough shape. Ant-Man could never have been written in D.C., right? Like, No. I mean... It's just kind of like Ant Man with the ants and the thing and the guy and the story. Like you just couldn't do that in DC, right? I no. mean, like it, it, it's not it, it, it's it's Jews wanting to be too, waspy too or something, weird. right? Like, <laughs> yeah. See, but that's the thing. Even even in DC, even when they got all their heroes together, their heroes all had to be perfect and they had to work together in this kind of good Protestant harmony. Uh, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. So the the story that I tell right at the beginning of the book, Stan Lee was about 40 when he created his first real comic book you know success story which is the the fantastic four he had wanted to quit because he thought comic books was were a very stupid industry he hated it uh and his wife said well you know if you're gonna quit anyway do one book the way you want to do it and so he got together with jack kirby and created a comic book that was basically a a replica of their relationship it's all quibbling all the time between these two great and yet very different and yet very interesting and opinionated men um DC would never stand for that. They they would not even understand why why this was was even an option. And here's the thing: they have they have sort of uh, adorably tried to replicate it through the times, and they fall flat again and again and again. Which is why, honestly, well, because the replication so, much, so few of the movies always are good. always comes down to Batman versus Superman, right? And you're thinking, right? Well, yeah, you got to have this Dumbo kind of Lancelot superpower figure versus the calculating like Dick Tracy kind of guy, and you always yeah. know. Right, that like who who should win? I mean, well, this guy should win because he he's got infinite superpowers. But then you got Jesus the smart wins guy every time. Like, <laughs> there's no scenario yeah. in which Jesus doesn't win. But it's interesting because I think like part of your take on Stanley is it, it seems as a Christian, eminently Christian, because all these figures are incarnational. They're all you know, God has to become human. Uh, so God's powers, when God is incarnate, always look flawed. And so Jesus goes and, you know, he has instances where he's like, well, I can't help you guys because you guys don't believe. <laughs> and then right. he gets crucified. Like, this kind of, the, the, 
the gospel story looks much more Marvel than DC, right? I mean, it, it looks like if God became human, what if God was what? What if God was one of us? It looks more <laughs> like Marvel than DC because it, it, exactly it looks because it it looks misunderstood and and the person with these powers becomes ultimately subjected to a travesty um, and humiliation for the That's sake of a- vulnerability. That's a really interesting interpretation, man. I never really stopped to think about it. See, so when I kind of think of the uh, of, of of the Marvel universe and and its Jewish essence, I think of of this great story from the Talmud, which you probably heard a million times. But indulge me for for ninety seconds here. Uh, so there were this group of yeah, because Leo, as a guy, as a cri- as a Christian guy, I'm at the Talmud all the time. I'm 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 doing a Talmud interpretation all the time. Listen. Uh, you would be surprised. I think if we mapped uh, the percentage of Christians, committed Christians who read the Talmud versus Jews who read the Talmud, I think you guys are way in the lead here. Because for Jews, if you're not an observant Jew, I don't think you've ever opened that book. I mean, the curiosity, sadly, isn't there. But there's an amazing story. um, And it's about this group of rabbis. And they're sitting and they're arguing about this this thing from from the Bible. Uh, And... One of them says one thing, and everyone else says something different. And the person who said the one thing says, okay, if I'm right, see this tree over there? Let this tree get off the ground and start dancing. And as soon as he finishes to say that, the tree gets off the ground, starts dancing. And the other rabbis are like, so what? It's just a tree. We don't, you know, trees don't get to decide arguments between famous rabbis. And so, well, if I'm right, let this river over here change the course of its flow. And of course, that happens too. And again, the rabbis are like, we're not impressed. It's just a river. It doesn't get to tell us what's wrong and what's right. And it goes on and on and on until finally the, the one rabbi says, okay, if I'm right, let God himself come down from heaven and said, this guy is right. And as soon as he says that, there's a heavenly voice from above said, Rabbi so-and-so is correct. And the other rabbis sort of look at the sky and say, excuse me, that may be your opinion in heaven, but here on earth, we decide. And then the story ends with the prophet Elijah uh, meeting one of the rabbis and saying, and the other rabbi asking, well, did, what did God think of this occasion? And the prophet Elijah saying, well, you know, I talked to him about it. And he said with a big smile, um, I have met my sons and they have outdone me. I think that's the spirit of Marvel. It's like, God? Like, okay, maybe. We don't, we can, God is unknowable to us. All that we have are these quibbles here on earth. And here on earth, we decide. Yeah, and that's the power. It's interesting because like before Neil Gorsuch, I think, there were only there were no Protestant um, Supreme Court justices. There were only Jews and Catholics. Correct. And so you have this casuistry, like where these long arguments about like how to interpret the sacred text and the sacred tradition, right? And I think part of the thing is, um, yeah, I, I, earlier today on the show, I, I interviewed George Barna, and he was talking. Mm-hmm. We were talking about evangelicalism, and and, and Vatican II kind of takes modernity and says we're going to figure out how to relate to Jews and to Buddhists mm-hmm. into this into that like and, and in a very orthodox way I mean you look at like both Benedict and Francis they're both children of Vatican too like I mean they're both like you know they're both shaped by this kind of orthodox Catholic embrace of modernity and I think that, I see that's, what you're saying although 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 you know I, I have a, I have a huge crush uh, on Catholicism I spend 
so much time, you know, thinking and reading. I think I'm the only Leibowitz who subscribes to America Magazine. Um, I think Benedict's answer is every, one that I have. Everybody, every seminarian asks me, what should I read before I go to seminary? Like Christian seminarians. I said, read Benedict the Sixteenth's books on the Gospels. They and they're are, the, and I'm not amazing. even kidding. They are on, they're on my nightstand. Together no, they're with amazing. The Talmud, for real. Amazing. Yep. So, all right, let me ask you this politically. Like we've we've covered many grounds. Like I am going to do the Howard Stern thing. We've said it all, Leo. We've, we've said it we've all. Said it like, all. And then you and then you keep talking. Like that's what Stern does and, with and, Seinfeld. And then, and then we keep talking. So, politically, like who were you voting for in the fall? Like I mean, who like if you imagine the kind of political landscape, like I'm imagining like in New York here, I don't know, we're emailing votes in you know, Corona, I don't know, like how elections look. And no, Rothman said something like, if you think you have anything, you know, anything about how things are going to work out, you know, nothing, because right. we don't know. But like, how do you imagine, like, are you voting for Trump in the fall? I'm going to say something that is that may sound like a like a huge cop out. First of all, I'm not yet privileged with full citizenship to this great country. I'm still merely uh, a legal. That alien. is so, that is so screwed up because if you know? if Liel Leibowitz is not an American, I don't want to be an American. I take that as the highest compliment, sir. Uh, and yet, I, I kind of you know there's something again very Jewish about it. I'm out and I'm. I am an outsider, but but look, even if this wasn't uh, weren't an issue, I would say something that may sound like a cop out, but but I really don't feel is. Um, I it, look, there are a lot of things that I dislike uh, about our current president and his particularly his disposition and and his spiritual uh, makeshift. Uh, I there are a lot of things he's about got, him that I he's got he's got the best disposition. The best. His disposition a lot of people are is saying, the best. It's the uh, best disposition. You know, th- there are a lot of things about him and and the policies that he's enacted and his instincts uh, that that I you know think are acceptable or in some cases even admirable. Uh, the I could say very much the same thing about his uh, presumptive competitor, uh, but I'm actually increasingly disinterested uh, in all that. I think that what the 2016 election did, if we are smart enough to see it uh, and and honest enough to seize it, is remind us that uh, the fault isn't in our political stars, (laughs) but in ourselves. That the opportunity here for, for growth and, if you will, redemption isn't through yet another kind of uh, political maneuver. It is by focusing on so many things that we have lost all track of and that we desperately need uh, to, if I may, truly make this country great again. Uh, It is focusing on things like industrial farming and the absolute devastation that it has wrought on so many poor black and poor white Americans. It is focusing on things like income inequality that is making life literally unlivable for so many people. It is focusing on things no, no, like... Yeah, now say more you know, about that as a conservative. With, where with income I want to be. With income inequality. I mean, say more about that because that's interesting. You don't hear many conservatives talk about income inequality. And, and again, we could talk about the, the way to address it. Maybe it's more free market, less free market. Like, that's interesting because yeah. you're saying it's a problem. And I think it is a problem. Like, I, I why, why does that grip you? Problem. <clears throat> well, because, look, fundamentally, I am a religious person. I don't, uh, you know, when, when, when I look up... Uh, I see more than sky, and I see the purpose of of this country and and the purpose of all human life as uh, geared toward a far higher cause. Uh, If that is the case for you, then I think you should rage against uh, any kind of society 
that decides that uh, financial bottom lines are more important than human dignity and human opportunity and human liberty, uh, you should be absolutely uh, indignant when you see people forced uh, to live in subhuman conditions uh, that really deny them of so much of, of, of the glories and grace of creation. Uh, just so someone could make uh, another added profit. Uh, as a conservative, I would say that you know nine times out of ten, it's also completely anathema to the principles of the free market to give one corporation, uh, or, or if I may, to give one industry, which in this case is the tech industry, complete license to devastate entire swaths of the American economy for fun and profit of a tiny group of investors. That's not free market at all. And this is right. Wait, I, oftentimes, like. If you're talking about regulation, right? Like what happens is the, the the people that will welcome regulation the most are the big tech corporations because like we have the lawyers to. You know, I remember like watching Orrin Hatch asking Mark Zuckerberg in that big interview. You know, mm-hmm. he was like, "Well, you do all you 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 provide all these services for for free. How do you do it?" He goes, "We sell ads." Right. Yeah. And then you're thinking, is that guy going to write the regulations? Now, what's going to happen is when we decide to regulate the big tech industries, they're going to bring in all their lawyers and they'll write the regulations that will continue continue the oligarchy, right? Like in the sense of they will like, we, we need a kind of playing ground where like, where they don't get to write their own regulations because they, they already control the market. So they're like, sure, yeah, regulators. Forget, forget regulations even. It's, it's something much more basic. Here's a classic example. Uh, there could be no doubt, speaking of this uh, vile company you have just mentioned, Facebook, there could be no doubt that Facebook has wrought tremendous damage uh, on the American body politic, uh, spreading uh, incredible amounts of, of both disinformation, misinformation, political distrust, mistrust, all, all kinds of, of, of real evils. Now, there's a very simple principle that already exists on the laws uh, and has guided American public life for more than a century, which basically says, look, if you make money off of ads uh, in exchange for content, you are a publisher. If you're a publisher, there are certain rules uh, by which you must abide, including, for example, the idea that if you malign someone or publish information that is provingly not true and you did nothing to uh, to stop its publication, you are liable for a very big lawsuit. Now, you say that to the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, and they will say, well, um, we're not a publisher, we're a platform, which is a ridiculous statement. If you publish content, it doesn't matter that the content in this case is provided for free by millions of people, and you uh, kind of take in millions and billions of dollars in advertising fees, uh, you should be subjected to precisely the same legislation that is already on the books governing, say, the New York Times or the Washington Post. Can I ask you, as a, as a media guy, like you are the host of the best Jewish podcast, one Correct. of the, the biggest... Also, correct. I mean, I, I, it, I'm a fan. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not like I'm, I'm a fan. Uh, I love the show. You Thanks. guys have really changed your format. Like the format changed. It was before COVID stuff and everything. Like, I, why change the format? I thought like the whole format with the kind of news of the Jews, right? The and then Gen, Jew and Gentile, all three of you, you did the best three-on-one interview. I thought it was impossible. And I think I'm one of the best conversational interviewers back and forth in the biz. And I actually told – Stephanie, I've actually talked about this. She's like, I could not imagine doing one-on-one. 
I was like, I can't imagine doing three on one. Like, because you guys are the best. Because you guys are the best. Why did you switch the format? Well, it's so funny to hear you say that. I actually don't think that we switched the format so dramatically that we still have News of the Jews, a favorite feature in which you could hear me uh, railing against the country of Belgium, which I despise. Um, we then have the Jewish guest of the week, the Gentile of the week. The only thing that we changed really is that sometimes instead, as you is the, is the, is the guest. Of three of one interviews, we would have one on one or two on interviews. That is simply because our appetite has grown. There are so many people that we really want to talk to and get to that if we wanted to, you know, coordinate four or five people's schedules for every interview, I feel like we would lose on so many people. That's number one. Number two, I feel like there is something, and this is something that we've learned in part from from listening to you, because you do do this very well. There's something really magical about this one-on-one. So sometimes, for example, tomorrow, uh, which is Thursday, May 7th, uh, we're going to have um, a May 7th, May 8th, Thursday, May 7th, uh, we're going to have the novelist Nick Hornby, who wrote about a boy in Fever Pitch and oh, Fidelity, wow. who's fantastic. And that was just this incredible you know, group conversation. But sometimes you want to really kind of stop, slow down, and have the type of conversation that really one of us would bring to the fore much more uh, effectively and efficiently than, than having a bunch of you know, squawking uh, vocal Jews talking at the same time. I miss the squawking vocal Jews, though. I, oh, there's I'm kind still of a, a lot squ- of squawking Jews. I, 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 I miss, I miss the, all the. So, okay, so the other thing. At least an hour at. a week of us talking over each other. So, for my <laughs> listeners who have not listened to Unorthodox, and if you're not listening to Unorthodox, shame, shame. <laughs> yeah, but you like Stephanie Butnick tells this great story where like you're like drinking tequila with her dad, and you're in the pool, and like. They're expecting you're going to miss your flight at 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. And he checks in at 5 a.m. And your room is like made up as if you're like, <laughs> like as if no one had ever stayed there. You're like Mossad, like, you know, James Listen, Bond. And you're like, here's the here's, name here's is the key. Leibowitz. Here's the key, honestly. Oh, yeah, Leibowitz. <laughs> that is absolutely 100% a true story. Um, here's the key, I think, to doing this. Uh, we are very different people. Uh, again, for the benefit of those who haven't listened, Mark Oppenheimer, uh, sort of the dad of the show, is a Yale professor with five children from Connecticut uh, who wears kind of, you know, J-Press clothes and is preppy and American and curious and wonderful uh, and sort of like intellectually ravenous. Uh, Stephanie is the very cool, very smart, um, <clears throat> young woman uh, from Long Island who is more attuned to modernity and its uh, mechanics uh, than certainly me and and brings a kind of really intelligent, really sharp perspective, very funny, very kind of cutting and awesome. Uh, and I am the, uh, the the man of noble proportions, uh, the fat bearded Jew, uh, the, the the true believer, the zealot, the, uh, the, the hardcore right wing gun fanatic, hard drinking dude. Uh, and, and, and a very, lo- and a I would say for our listeners, a very lovable Jew. I mean, like this is the most lovable, yeah, well, lovable if person. If you're, into, if you're into that kind of thing, <laughs> you know. But but I think the point that we're making, and, and here I want to get serious, uh, because there is a larger point of the show, and the larger point is a point that we need to hear right now, desperately. If you cannot have a conversation, you know, strike that. If you cannot have a friendship, a genuine 
human connection. With a person who sees the world 180 degrees, you know, differently than than you do, you are missing the whole point of existence. We have so many times in which, you know, we would interview someone on the far left and then get this angry male like, I can't believe you let this person on the show. And then like two days later, it'll be someone on the right and be like, I can't believe you let this person on the show. It's like, guys, it's not about that. It's about listening to each other. It's about learning about different points of view. It's about respecting each other. And and moreover, and again, this is this goes back to, to what I feel is the great challenge of our political moment in time. It's about transcending these idiotic differences and understanding that the things that we really share in common, the challenges that we really have, uh, the call to community that we must answer, so much bigger than these, these these silly little quibbles of like, oh, I like Trump and I dislike Trump. Like, who cares? Yeah, and that and that's what like I mean. I I remember the first time I ever listened to the podcast. Um, it was it was promoted on the Slate Political Gabfest, mm-hmm. and I listened and I was I was dialed in. And I mean, I I, I it, it, it's again like if you're not listening to it, shame. Shame. Uh, it, it, it is one of the best um, and inspired me. I mean, it, it kind of like it, it's inspired a lot of my creative projects. I mean, I think it's a magical. What you guys have done is magical. I mean, it's yeah, really. Yeah, I love it. You know, it's fun. What's that? We just love being together. It's fun for us. I mean, that's kind of the core of it. And we I've been with like you guys in person, and it's kind of like I mean, it, it is the same thing. Like I and I've gotten to know all of you individually. I mean, it it is an amazing thing. I mean, really, you guys, it's a beautiful thing you're doing. And like, so when you think arcing it out, like, do you guys like sit and think? You know, bands break up. Like, do you guys think about like when's the band breaking up? The band is never breaking up. We will bands be... break up. Bands break up. Come on, Leo. Come on, bands Scott break Jess, up. The last live show I saw before COVID were the freaking Rolling Stones. <laughs> okay, tell them about breaking up because they're 148 each, and they are still incredible and amazing. Here is here is the large part of of why I'm saying this with with confidence. First of all, um, we do a lot of other things. I mean, we all work for Tablet Magazine. Uh, we all write and edit a lot of stories uh, and you know kind of are engaged in a lot of other projects that the publication puts out um we all have side projects for example stephanie and i just launched a um game show a podcast that's a game show for kids called hebrew school which uh in a fun way teaches kids about the bible and other things that you should learn in hebrew school if hebrew schools or sunday schools for that matter were, were fun and taught by like super cool creative people uh i'm sure i'm sure, St- I'm sure stephanie is strong on the content on that Stephanie's amazing. Here's the thing. <laughs> I'm, just Stephanie, I'm just just thinking of the Bible Stephanie, stuff. Stephanie I love Stephanie. She's amazing. In religious studies from NYU, Stephanie knows a lot. I mean, the funny thing is sometimes she would play the sort of like, oh, I'm just a cool young millennial and I don't know anything. And like these guys, and I'm sorry to say that it's almost always guys would come to you and be like, well, you see in Judaism. And she's like, yes, I have a master's degree in this and I know seven times <laughs> as much as you do about it. I'm playing a role in a show. And they're like, oh, oh, yeah. I like that. I like that. Yeah, no, it's super, super, super cool. Uh, And so that's reason number two. Reason number three, um, and here again, with permission, I I get serious. Um, Look, I think something really interesting is happening to American Jews now. I think it started in earnest after the the shooting in Pittsburgh. I think a lot of Jews all of a sudden... um, My good friend Barry Weiss, who writes for the New York Times and just had a great book called How to Fight Anti-Semitism... 
had this really great phrase. He said it felt waking up and, and hearing the news about Pittsburgh felt like waking up from a holiday from history, right? You grew up in this country, and if you were born in the last 30, 40, 50 years, you're like, anti-Semitism is something that you learn about, you know, that happened in Europe a really long time ago. It shouldn't really concern you because this is America. Like, the worst that could happen is someone would call you a name. And all of a sudden, this happens. And I think what this did is it drove a lot, and it's not, uh, sadly, uh, an isolated incident. The anti-Semitism is now, or at least as of last year, has been at, a, at an all-time high uh, in America and, and continues to rise, sadly, both on the left and on the right. And I think what that did is prompt a lot of Jews to want to reconnect with, with their tradition. Uh, but then when they looked around for places to do it, you know, synagogues are, are not what they used to be. A lot of them are losing membership and dwindling. Uh, some Jews have problems with religion and its more traditional incarnations. Uh, some Jews feel this term that we like to bandy about called Jew-barrassment, which is the feeling of, you know, feeling like you're a really bad Jew if you don't really know the Bible and read the Talmud six times back and forth. Uh, and so I think what we do is is kind of create this atmosphere that is really welcoming, that is really kind of all-embracing, that doesn't judge you if you're someone who's a Jew by choice and won't judge you if you're someone who doesn't, you know, observe uh, all or many uh, or any of the commandments. Um, but at the same time, really inspire you to learn something and do something, and, and most importantly, be in a community with other Jews, especially, I can't stress this enough, especially Jews you don't agree with. It's interesting. I find, like, I wonder, do you think, like, again, I had George Bonner on the podcast earlier, and he's, mm -hmm. he was, he's the, he's the kind of Christian researcher of, like, biblical worldview stuff or anything. It's, I wonder, do you worry, like, as we get de-Christianized, like as a Christian, I mean, I I think about like this great Rosenzweig quote, right? Like that that you know the purpose for Rosenzweig says the Christ the purpose of the Christian is to take the God of Israel to the world, and that that's the purpose of every Christian. And he says the purpose of every Jew is to convert the inner pagan in every Christian, because all of us Christians are have inner pagans. <laughs> And that, but I think that's that so true, right? I mean, man. that is so yeah, beautiful. And I, yeah, and and I I wonder like do you. The level that we have accommodated the anti-Semitism in this in this culture is weird. Like it, 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 it it's it's bubbled up, and we have not like it's not as though like it's it's wrong alarm bells. Like, like it's not like people are saying like, oh my god, this is really bad. Like uh, it, it, that scares me as a Christian. Does it scare you as a Jew? So, well, first of all, yes, absolutely. It terrifies me as a Jew. Uh, the only thing, of course, I'm grateful for is that now, unlike virtually any other moment in modern history, we have a strong and well-armed Jewish state to defend us uh, should things go south. I, I want to. I are, are you teaching? Are you teaching Mark Oppenheimer how to shoot guns? I would welcome the opportunity. Uh, heartily if if offered uh and i offer that if he lets me do that i will let him teach me how to tie a bow tie uh but i i want to answer the question that's it i direction. leo i could teach you how to do that it's easy oh my god this listen it's like teaching a monkey how to do it it's very hard for me 
Uh, but but I want to answer the question from a different direction because because I think you're you're touching on something here that is kind of at the core of of really what what the the, the discontent of the last I don't know twenty fifty years uh, is really about. Look, I think what we're seeing, and this may sound crazy because most of us, as as the poet once said, measure our time in coffee spoons. Uh, we don't think in terms of centuries. We think in terms of last Wednesday. Um, I think what we're really seeing right now is the the decline, if not the demise, of the Enlightenment, uh, which in of itself, uh, the Enlightenment was a kind of uh, counter-reaction to certain religious uh, currents. Uh, and I think we're seeing now the death of that and the rise or the return uh, to a very different and very uh, theologically grounded sensibility. Uh, we're seeing the failings of, of science and progress, uh, which is not to say that these things are meaningless and should be ignored. Far from it. We're just seeing um, the limitations, which were always obvious and natural to anyone who didn't care to turn them into another faith system. Uh, and I think that's actually the real divide here, and it's a, it's it's an internal divide among Christians and Christians, and among Jews and Jews, because ultimately it comes down to to this really profound and profoundly disturbing question: Well, how, how do you really see the world? You know, what what is the purpose of all of this? And I think if you are a God fearing person, uh, if you are a person of faith, uh, and if you are a person who organizes uh, her or his life according uh, to uh, trying to to meet uh, or commune with 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 the divine will um your answer is very very and radically different uh than than what a non-observant person would say and i think at the core of the fissures that we see in so many places in the western world debates over uh, things like abortion but also debates over the culture uh debates over what should be the shape of education debate over what values should guide our, our, our national political interests? I think it's really that question that we're asking. Uh, and the answers here aren't easy, nor do the fault lines uh, you know, pass neatly between, say, Jews and Catholics or Catholics and Protestants, which is why you're seeing all kinds of strange and, and maybe uh, inconceivable 20, 30, 40 years ago coalitions of all of a sudden there are Sikhs and, and conservative Christians and Orthodox Jews forming groups together because you know I think I'm I'm much much closer to 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 a believing Christians in in my worldview uh than I probably am to a secular Jew who lives down the hall from me. So would you t- type yourself as modern orthodox? Is that where you no. would locate? I would locate myself as a simple Jew. I I dislike divisions. Uh I am I am a Jew who like every other Jew is uh it's, it's the great joke that Paul Rudd made on a television show recently. You know, they call it a practicing Jew because you know we're not perfect at it yet. Um, <laughs> but you, but you do go to a congregation, right? The congregation I go to is amazing and very, very, very one of a kind. It's um, it's a, uh, it's called Romemu. It's in New York City. Uh, it's a called. It's part of something called the Renewal Movement, which is a part of a neo Hasidic uh, '60s uh, stream of Judaism that combines. The sort of uh, Hasidic enthusiasm and, and song and dance and and mysticism and storytelling with um, kind you know of what I love is how you how you describe values. this you get more you get more Woody Allen you're like I go to this thing it's kind I of neo Hasidic it's kind of a neo Hasidic we're doing song the show and I dance never go to and, is, is, it's a Roman movie. It, it's a movement. Uh, you, you get you get kind of more Woody Allen as you describe I it. I do. Every Jew does. <laughs> Talk to us long enough, and we all sound like Woody Allen. So, like, so what yeah, do you, it's like, great. 
so what what has drawn you there? Well, what has drawn me there is that I feel it's a very good compromise for our family. Um, I, left to my own devices, would, would definitely gravitate towards a more traditional Orthodox shul. Uh, in the last several years, I've become much more observant. I pray three times a day. I keep kosher. I you know observe a host of other uh, strictures and commandments. Uh, my wife's at a different point in her spiritual journey, and, and my kids love to be in a place that allows them the freedom to make their own sorts of discoveries. It's a very joyous place, and mostly it is due to the incredible rabbi, David Ingber, uh, who really is a very serious scholar and and a committed spiritual seeker and just a, a wonderful soul who I'm lucky to study with and learn from. That's amazing that you pray three times a day. I do. I mean, it's a lot. Uh, it's a struggle, let me tell you that. When do you pray? Morning, noon, night? Like, there are prescribed times for that. <laughs> We're Jews. We don't leave this. You're saying chance. you're not like you're not leaving it up to chance. There's literally an app that tells you when you are the, the acceptable. But yes, it's 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 morning, uh, afternoon, and evening, and 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 you know it's it's kind of amazing because it's morning, right? You wake up, you only want to do one thing, which is drink coffee, and after that, you want to read your email, and after that, you maybe want to talk to your kids. And after that, you want to like read the news. And there's something so incredibly powerful uh, in saying, no, I'm going to stop for 40 minutes now, put on a prayer shawl and phylacteries, which are these leather straps uh, with little cubes that contain uh, verses from the Torah. And I am going to do my best, which fails very frequently, but it's a, a noble struggle. I'm, I like to think that I fail better at kind of guiding uh, all of my intentionality, right? Uh towards all of my heart and all of my soul towards God. And even if it doesn't always work out that way, it at least starts a day with a reminder that whatever else happens in the next, you know, course of the next 18 hours, uh, there are far greater powers and purpose in life uh, than just the struggles that you're going to have over email with your colleagues, the little tiffs with your wife or with your kids. It's kind of an amazing realignment of, of, of the heart and the mind and the soul. And it happens three times a day. And I think you kind of need it three times a day. Well, you are a force of nature. And, uh, and also, I'm going to start praying three times a day. I mean, I'm a Christian. I'm not praying three times a day. But thank you for spending 90 minutes with me. I mean, this is, um, you're gracious with your time. Um, you've written Wonderful. a great as always. Yeah, always. Um, and I, I'm thankful for you and stay alive in New York. I'm just grateful that you are healthy and alive. Um, and thanks for who you are. Scott Jones, my brother, my friend, a great big pleasure. Thank you so much for your wisdom and for your friendship. Thanks again. Yay! Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.